Book of Malachi, When Spiritual Intimacy Feels Elusive, Part 7. Tonight, specifically, marriage, divorce, and the people of God. Marriage, divorce, and the people of God. I want to read the text, and then I need to make a couple introductory comments. Malachi 2, 13 through 16. This is the second thing you do. The first thing, the first thing had to do with the uh, marrying of unsaved, unlinked, we would call today. For them, it was outside of the worship of the God of Israel. And they were taking partners that were influencing them away from the Lord. We talked about that last Sunday night. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning. Tears, weeping, groaning. Because he, that's the Lord, no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? What's the problem? They don't. They don't seem to know. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit, capital S, with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, that's interesting, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Introductory comments. These aren't in your notes. First, let me urge you to hear the whole teaching tonight before you make your assessment of it or pass judgment on it. Hear the whole thing. There are truths that need to be proclaimed and received in balance with each other. I have found over the years that the position I've come to hold is both it's not the right word, I just can't find a better one, is both stricter and more forgiving than most pastors with whom I speak. Stricter than a lot of them, more forgiving than a lot of them. And that comforts me a bit. I feel like I might be in close to the right place. So the stricter side comes first tonight. I can't just skirt around it like a lot of people do, and I don't think you'd expect me to after 40-plus years here. So let's start into it. It's interesting that this passage about divorce doesn't directly start talking about divorce. It, it starts examining a people who can't approach God with a glad heart. Uh, the life and the joy have gone out of their walk with God. 
Malachi seems to indicate that none of them can make their approach to God in prayer and worship with a cheerful mind. They're constantly sad and groaned. That's the exact word used in verse 13. You cover the Lord's altar with tears. There's weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So they were sad, weeping, groaning. They were like that because they found God to be hard, unapproachable, unhearing. They still felt they needed God. Obviously, because they kept making their approach to the altar, they didn't have to. They kept coming to God. But they couldn't. They couldn't seem to remember why they were coming, what was supposed to be happening. They knew nothing was working, but they, they couldn't seem to find any light at the end of the tunnel, no way to please God, to be happy in God, to have him hear their prayers. So what do you talk to people like that about? And that's where the text seems to have great impact and relevance as is always the case, not just on this subject. God begins dealing with the people at the point they had come to ignore while they were making their approach and making their sacrifices. They weren't thinking about it anymore, but God was still thinking about it. That's interesting. I wonder about a lot of things in our culture that nobody's thinking about much anymore. They don't shock anybody anymore. We've pretty well gotten used to a lot of it, but God's still thinking about it. That's what's happening here. And so he reminds them, I want to talk to you about the casual attitude that's developing among my people, he says, through the prophet Malachi, toward divorce. I want to talk to you about the way you discard the wife of your youth. It's a tough subject, a tough passage. There are several things I want to stress right at the beginning of this message. I said the stricter side comes first. One, Malachi is dealing with a very specific sin in these verses. He's talking specifically to men who get tired of their wives and, for lack of a better word, want to get rid of them or trade them in on newer models. Uh, A woman could never divorce her husband. That's why it's the man that's addressed. Woman had no power to do that in that culture. That's why both Malachi and Jesus talk about men who divorce their wives. That's mostly true, but not quite true. I'm hoping to take the time to show you later on. But generally, that's, that's true. In that day, men were the initiators of all divorce. And since the times of Moses, they could divorce for very little reason. And as time went by, a hardness of heart would set in. That's what Jesus talked about specifically in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. That's what Jesus talked about specifically. People would with very little feelings of guilt whatsoever, they'd plan their next step in getting rid of their spouse the way you would change a garment. 
that's talked about in Malachi 2.16. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit. Do not be faithless. Of course, right away, you think of Malachi and you think of Jesus. Jesus approaches the subject in basically the same way. There's a couple of texts. The first one I'm going to look at, you can't ignore these texts, church. I mean, we can't just pretend these aren't in the Bible. Are you agreeing with me there? Matthew 5, 27 to 32, here's Jesus. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Do you see Jesus talking about hell here? And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. You know who said that? That was Moses. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And I think everyone who names the name of Christ has to ask the question, are those words, are they true? That's not the hard question, though. The hard question is, if those words are true, think with me here, please. Do those words, do they mean, do they permanently imprison countless numbers of divorced and remarried Christians? Somehow we've got to come to terms with this. And I'm going to try and do that in just a few minutes. But before that, some context to Jesus' words, because they're very much like Malachi's. Do you think it's accidental that Jesus' words about divorce fall right on the heels? This is why I read the whole context. The, the, the words about divorce fall right on the heels of his teaching on lust. He, he sees these men. He knows what's in their hearts. He knows they're using the words of Moses, this permission because of the hardness of their hearts. He knows that they're just using the words of Moses to ditch one woman for another, that they've already seen and desired and lusted after. That's what he says. Now, this passage from Malachi has particular relevance to the people of God today. Today, both husbands and wives can file for divorce at the drop of a hat. I said my view is stricter and more forgiving. I'm on the stricter side. Because of the frequency with which it happens, a, 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 a callous mind or, Bible words, a hard heart can easily set into the soul of the body of Christ. Did you know 53%, that's over half, 53% of all Christian marriages will end in divorce? In other words, the next time you're at a wedding in Cedarview and they're right here, 
and whoever's marrying them is standing here and they pray and we sing a couple nice songs, remember, the odds are better that they will divorce than stay married. Does that do something in your heart? The odds are better that they will divorce than stay married. And so Jesus is dealing with the same, the same kind of hard-heartedness that Malachi was talking about. It gets very easy for us to think that we'll just get rid of this pain-in-the-neck marriage, get it out of the way, it's not working, I'm not happy, the church will quickly forget, God doesn't really care anyway, it won't be long, and I'll be back in ministry in the church. How long can the pain last? Who's going to care in a year or two? And all I can say from studying Malachi is the people weren't thinking about it anymore, but it seemed to stay in God's mind long after it wasn't on theirs anymore. Point two. Why divorce is such a terrible sin? Malachi 2, 13 and 14. This is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offspring or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. People know that a marriage is a covenant between two people. Malachi reminds them that marriage is actually a covenant between three people. Made before God. You hear it at most weddings. We are gathered together in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses. I'll let you into my heart. My skin literally crawls when I hear some trendy pastor, it doesn't happen here, but when I hear some trendy pastor in tight jeans and a t-shirt get up and say, Harry and, I'm trying to think of people that don't have that name. If I picked your name, it's just coincidence, okay? Eunice and Hank. Eunice and Hank are, are just so happy you've all come to join us for our special day. That's terrible. And it's not just a style thing. It's not just trying to be folksy and relational. Something in me wants to get up and say, wait a minute. We're not here because it's your special day. We're here as witnesses. We are gathered together in the sight of God and in the presence of these, say it with me, witnesses. For Eunice and Hank. I'll tell you why that's important. The odds now are, one day, Eunice is going to get sick of Hank and Hank won't feel all that excited about an aging Eunice. 
and they're going to announce the end of their marriage in a church like Cedarview. It's going to happen. And here's what's supposed to happen next. Several hundred people should all be texting Eunice and Hank. Several hundred people should be texting Eunice and Hank and saying, wait a minute, I was there that Saturday a year and a half ago. I remember that beautiful sunny Saturday. It wasn't my idea to come. I wanted to go golfing. My wife said we had to come and witness your marriage. And I heard you say you were there until death. What gives? I got 200 witnesses, and we all heard you say it. We are gathered here in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses. So the next time somebody gets up and says, Eunice and Hank are just so happy you came to see their special day. Everybody get up and just go, boo. It has nothing to do with that. The wedding belongs to the bride and groom. How many groomsmen, how many bridesmaids, what color flowers, what music, and on and on and on and on and on and on. But the marriage is God's. What therefore God has joined together. There are a lot of places in Scripture that reflect this divine reality in marriage. Here's one, Proverbs 2, 16 and 17. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of God. Notice, who forgets the covenant of her God. Point number three. So guard yourself in your spirit. This is my heart, church. Guard yourself in your spirit. Look at 15 and 16, Malachi 2. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, underline. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Twice, guard yourselves in your spirit. It's repeated twice for emphasis. And here's the thing. Be careful not to allow these reckless intentions in your heart to go unchecked by the word of God. Don't let it happen. That's what he's saying. Impulses come to everyone. Good impulses, bad impulses. It's part of the fall. They come to everyone in this room. But please notice You guard your own life when you listen to the Lord. You don't just guard your marriage, and you don't just please God. Guard yourselves in your spirit, 15 and 16. It's your life you're protecting. Notice also where divorce begins and how it grows. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Divorce divorce always, always begins on the inside in the mind, in the heart. It becomes a possibility in the thought life long before any papers are signed. In most cases, perhaps as high as 90%, divorce is entertained because at least one partner has already committed his heart 
to another person, whether it's been acted on or not. That's why churches, pastors, churches can talk very, very few Christians out of divorce. Because when you've already given your heart to someone else, neither reason nor scripture verses can make you take it back. So the trick is to guard your heart much earlier in the process. I want to talk to you about this tonight, maybe more bluntly than I've ever done. Because there's a pattern to all sin, but it's especially true in marital unfaithfulness and divorce. Here are the steps. A, tempting circumstances arise. At some point, the heart wasn't prepared. It wasn't ready for something that came along life's track. I mean, neither David nor Bathsheba had any plans of adultery when they got up that morning to start out their day's routines. David probably went, worshipped, that sacrifice, that morning sacrifice, called on God, presented his heart to the Lord as he always did. That's how the day started. Those kind of circumstances come down the pipe to every child of God who has drawn breath. Something happens. You meet someone. You weren't looking for it. And they just, they just clicked. There was, a, there was a, a warmth and a fascination that you haven't felt for a long time. B, circumstances appeal to desire. Doesn't have to be the desire for an affair, David Bathsheba, doesn't have to be. Might just be the desire to be instantly free from what you've been carrying around of the burden of your marriage, the desire to get out. And suddenly there seems to be some kind of breaking point, an opening. You can see that there is a door that up till now you've kept closed and now there's light coming through under it and you start to entertain forbidden options. I said it always starts in the heart. Guard your spirit. There seem to be options. Options you never entertained before. You wouldn't have thought of them. C, desire always creates a fantasy. This is particularly true when there's some kind of another person involved in the destruction of a marriage. Desire always creates a fantasy. Because your mind has been blinded by desire, rational thought goes out the window, and you start to paint a picture of the unrestrained freedom and peace and bliss that will be yours if you just get out of that situation you're in now. Then your own mind becomes your worst enemy. It becomes, with a life of its own, a factory, manufacturing reasons that play into the desire. After all, Pastor Don, we never really loved each other anyway. I don't think we were ever really married in God's eyes. I've heard them all. Think of the children, Pastor Don. They deserve so much better than to see mom and dad fighting all the time. And all those thoughts, you just let them marshal convincing arguments in favor of a sinful choice. Or you imagine the kind of woman you'll be able to land once you get free of your marriage. I've counseled scores of people leaving their present marriage partner, and let me tell you something, that third partner, the one waiting in the mind of the one wanting the divorce, that woman will never be all that 
you've painted her up to be in your fantasy, and if she were, she'd have nothing to do with you anyway. But it's a dream. And the fantasy works. Works in the opposite direction of your present partner. I'm looking at just from the man's perspective, though it's the same from a woman's. He starts comparing his wife with that airbrushed dream girl in his mind, and he'll build a negative case for his wife, just as he'll build a dream world for his girlfriend. Now he decides his wife is always a nag. She's, she's taking away his freedom. She's never any fun. She never makes love to him, whatever it is. Years ago, I read a book called The Myth of Greener Grass by J. Allen Peterson. I'd recommend it, but I know you can't get it in a million years anymore. And he writes the specifics in of a man planning an affair with his wife. But you can flip it either way. Peterson says, quote, As a rule, a partner at home is no match for the one in the mind. Comparisons increase as the affair deepens. The spouse at home does not communicate anymore, is not affectionate, does not meet my needs. The fantasy is used to rationalize, to help justify what he's already committed to do. Listen, the mind is no longer a truth-finding instrument, but a flatterer of his own ego, protecting him from anything he doesn't want to hear. It's perfect. Then the fantasy cries out for action. First thing you have to do is lie. First to yourself, and then you have to tell lies. When you're trying to hide the initial stages, the lying, it's late eating Pringles. You know, you can never just take one out of that tube. So once honorable Christian people, they now look their spouses straight in the eye, they'll lie about their schedules, their work hours, their appointments, their expenditures. Their integrity is being just cut from under them. So there. There's that situation. Malachi and Jesus both say, don't do it. Just don't do it. Four. I said at the beginning, my view is stricter. I, I talk to pastors who just completely explain away Jesus' words, like they aren't even there in the Gospels. I don't know how you do that. I, I can't do that. So that's the stricter side that I think the church has to keep holding up. But there's a grace side I want to talk about for. But I've already been divorced and am remarried. What should I do? And I want so much not to be misunderstood in this teaching time. I've been teaching from a text that deals with people who are deserting their wives to find better ones, all the while trying to pretend that God didn't care and they could just pick up their Christian walk when they were ready. Now I want to deal with some very different situations. A. There's the person who was divorced and remarried before coming to Christ as Savior. And I can't Myself, I can't ignore Jesus' blunt words in the text I quoted earlier, but now looking at it from Mark's gospel. And Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So clearly, clearly mistakes were made. 
There are marriages that if Jesus' words mean anything, they shouldn't have been entered into, and there's just no way to change that now. It's one thing to agree that Jesus cautions the danger of a forbidden start to a relationship. Please hear this. It's one thing to agree that Jesus cautions the danger of a forbidden start to a relationship. It's another to say that it creates a permanent condition of ongoing adultery. That is, that the second marriage can never be a pure relationship in God's eyes. And I want to say to everyone here, that is not the teaching of the Scriptures. I want to show you why I think that. But I've never felt more strongly about anything I've said from this pulpit than I do about what I want to say now. It is, it is diminishing I get in trouble with the strict group when I say this. It is diminishing to the power of the cross to even hint that some sins just stain so deeply and permanently that the blood of Jesus does not quite get them out. I hate that kind of thinking. This is to fundamentally belittle and reject all that the New Testament says about the unbelievable power of the blood of Jesus Christ. How much unrighteousness does it cleanse me from anyway? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from every bit, every bit. This is this is this gets to the heart of the Christian profession. Old things are passed away. Behold everything. How much is everything? Well, it's just about everything. Everything is made new. Especially made new are the beginnings of things. The root is made new. That's what, that's what new creation means. Something completely recreated in 500 years or 1,000 years, whenever Jesus comes back, this body that's buried somewhere, there won't be anything left of it. Okay? Don't think of, and this relates to this topic, don't think of the resurrection as, as Jesus is coming and he's going to reassemble all the little bits of me that might be remaining in, in the grave. People have all sorts of, what about someone that was eaten by a shark, Pastor Don? And they don't understand. The resurrected body is not reassembly. It's new creation. In the same way, imagine God coming, scoops up some dirt, that's all it was. You could go, and it would just be a puff of smoke. He scoops up dirt. How much life is there in dirt? Like, we don't, we don't think about this miracle. And God, you know what he makes out of it? A living person. We call it creation, right? What he's going to do when Jesus comes again is called re-creation. Not reassembly. A new creation. Here's someone, they can't do anything about it now. They're divorced, they're remarried, they're moving on in their Christian life. That marriage is not just, well, well, we'll make do. It's a new creation. B. There are people who have been divorced by their partner. 
They weren't looking for a divorce. They wanted to keep their marriage together and whole for different reasons. There's a lot of them. For different reasons, they found themselves in situations that were no longer in their control. And to you too, I would offer words of encouragement. No church has the right to punish one person for another person's sin. God doesn't treat us that way, nor would I. And I found some words from the Apostle Paul that don't get quoted enough, very helpful. Are you still with me? I'm not boring you, am I? Okay. Even if I am, you have to pretty well sit here. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 16. To the married, I give this charge. And I underline these words. Not I, but the Lord. Paul is saying, this is what Jesus talked about. Matthew 19, Mark. This is what Jesus was talking about. The wife should not separate from her husband. If she does separate, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. The husband is not to divorce his wife. Okay, so that's not new teaching. Now look what he says. To the rest, I say... Underline, I, not the Lord. Now, what's he doing here? Is he saying, forget about what Jesus said? No, that's not what he's doing. Here's what he's doing. He's saying, here's what Jesus talked about. I'm talking about something different. Do you see that in your your text? It's really important. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. He doesn't mean this doesn't count. He means this is a different subject. There are some situations in addition to the ones Jesus covered in that brief sermon on the mount. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So the Christian shouldn't be initiating it. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I take that to mean that even in this situation, the marriage is real, and there's, there's no uh, sexual impropriety in the marriage relationships between those two people. 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is, and he doesn't explain this, he just says, is not enslaved, bound. The unbelieving partner leaves, is just gone. And, And the text says, I am not enslaved anymore. God has called you to peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you save your wife? So there are situations, difficult situations, and you as a Christian need to do all you can to make your marriage what God wants it to be. And Paul seems to recognize it's not always going to happen. It's not always going to happen. You can't, you can't always hold things together. And Paul says, when that situation erupts, God has called you to peace, verse 15. Now I want to give you what I think is maybe the most important point, C. Whatever marriage you are in, it must be your last. God wants your marriage to work. If you're divorced, there's no going back. If you're remarried, then you're married. I want to show you why that's not just my opinion. 
If you're in your third marriage, you have to be faithful in it and make it strong. The principle is grace must never be used to justify repeating sinful actions. Jesus himself recognized second and even third marriages. By that I mean he did not consider them to be adulterous relationships. Is that John 4, 15 to 18 text in your notes? Look at it carefully as I read. The woman said to him, this is the woman at the well, okay? Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, she's trying to skirt this. "Uh, No, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had Five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. Now, there's something striking here. Jesus didn't say you've had one husband, the first one, and you've had five adulterous relationships. This is so important because this is the same Jesus This is the same Jesus who cautioned against making an improper beginning in divorce and remarriage, let alone the second or third or fourth. And yet, Jesus seems to recognize that these were all recognizable, real marriages. These words of Jesus to this repeating marriage enterer are the same lips that said to leave one partner for another is adultery. So which is it? Taken all together, Jesus is saying, don't leave the marriage you're in. Work with all your forgiving might to stay in your first marriage. That is God's plan. Take the warnings of Jesus seriously. But no matter what, make your present marriage strong in the Lord. Never entertain any thought of divorce. Be faithful in the heart toward your spouse. So my conclusion from last week, if you're sitting here planning marriage, do not marry an unbeliever. Marry in the Lord. Do not make your life miserable. You want me to tell you how to ruin your life in your 20s? Here's how you ruin your life in your 20s. If you're in your 20s, listen to me. Marry an unbeliever. That's how you ruin your life in your 20s. Only marry in the Lord. If you're already married or divorced and legally remarried, you stay in that marriage. That is permanent until Jesus comes. Your marriage is the foundation of everything else that you will be before the Lord. It'll keep you from spilling tears at the altar, wondering why God doesn't hear your prayer. It forms the basis of your devotion, your prayer, your worship, your honesty, your purity. Guard your hearts, church. Guard your hearts. Did I just confuse everybody? I think everyone has to find a way of taking the words of Jesus, 
repeated three times, seriously, and yet taking his words to that woman where he says, you've, you've had five husbands, four husbands, rather. Like, did you say four or five? I think four husbands. And it's the same Jesus. So the same one that says that cautions, do not do this, the same one recognizes when it's done that it can't be undone. You make your present, you make your present situation strong in the Lord. And we've got countless examples in this church of that. Pray with me.